Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So let's give careful attention to the reading of God's word as it's found in Leviticus, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, if the anointed priest sins bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it there before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take up some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting. He is to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. The priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He shall remove all the fat from the bull of the sin offering, all the fat that is connected to internal organs, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys. Just as the fat is removed from the ox sacrificed as a fellowship offering. Then the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh, as well as the head and legs, the internal organs and the intestines, that is, all the rest of the bull, he must take outside of the camp to a place ceremonially clean where the ashes are thrown and burn it there in a wood fire on the ash heap. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would sweeten this word that we're going to look at this morning to our hearts and minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior, who together with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns forever, one God. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, I'll ask for a show of hands. Uh, This is an easy one. How many of you have ever decided to read the Bible through in a year? That's a good number of you. Now, I'm not going to ask the follow-up. <laughs> How many of you actually succeeded? Uh, nor am I going to ask for a show of hands with regard to how many of you made it uh, through Genesis and Exodus, and then came Leviticus. And you either took a little hiatus until it was time to get into numbers, uh, or you just decided maybe you'd try again next year. Leviticus is a book that is misunderstood. Uh, we can easily get lost in the forest for all of the trees. 
My guess is, is that scripture was read. There were at least one or two things in there that seemed a bit peculiar to you. A little bit odd for things to be contained in God's word. Well, my text this morning is actually bigger than the text that we read. My text is Leviticus chapter 1 through chapter 7. But I didn't want to take the time to read the entirety of the text, so I kind of got to the heart of it. We really want to study these first seven chapters. Now, that might seem like a big text for one sermon, and it it kind of is. Uh, I have preached before one sermon on the whole book of Chronicles. Uh, Any text in the Bible is preachable. Just the bigger the text, the less detail. In fact, when I was was first converted, it it was in high school, and as I may have shared along the way, I was one of those uh, least likely to ever be a Presbyterian minister uh, when I was in high school. But... um, I was converted in the spring of my senior year, and I had an English class, and we had to do a book report. And so what better book to do my book report on than the whole Bible? (laughs) And we were always given the option to either do a report in writing or to do it orally. I never went for the writing part. I just did it orally. And I uh, I was surprised that after I gave a... 15-minute book review of the whole Bible, my English professor actually liked it. He just encouraged me that next time I might want to take like a smaller text. Uh, I remember one of my mentors, Dr. Clowney, talking about uh, detail in preaching, and he he used an illustration of a map. If we had on this wall a map of the universe, there would not be a whole lot of detail. If it were a map of our solar system, there would be more detail. If it were a map of the earth, there would be more detail. If it were a map of Florida, there would be even more detail. If it were a schematic of this building for the electrical work, there would be a lot of detail. And so the bigger the text, the less the detail. So we're going to look at seven chapters out of the book of Leviticus. And These chapters amaze me, and I hope that you will come away not only uh, with insight into these chapters, but also encouraged by the grace of God that is revealed here, and also come away with uh, with a new appreciation for how much of God's grace is revealed in places like the book of Leviticus. So you might, with maybe new lenses, decide to tackle that book and uh, sit down and read through it from beginning to end. Well, out of this uh, text of seven chapters, I want to say four things that are strung together. Uh, and the, uh, the title of this sermon is actually Living uh, Abundantly by Abundant Grace, which might seem a little bit odd, but in my heart of hearts, I'm sure what, that's what these seven chapters are about living abundantly by abundant grace. How do we get there? Well, you're going to hear that word abundance repeated a number of times. First of all, what we see big picture in these seven chapters is how God provided an abundance of sacrifices. 
God provided an abundance of sacrifices. If you read Leviticus chapter 1, it's all about what we call in English translation the burnt offering. Then you move into chapter 2, and we read all about the grain offering. Chapter 3 is the fellowship offering. Chapter 4 is the sin offering. And chapter 5 is the guilt offering. Now, I don't want us to get lost in the forest for the trees. My main point is God has provided an abundance of sacrifices. Not just one. Not just two. Not just three. Four. Five. God has provided an abundance of sacrifices. Now, in all honesty, some of these sacrifices are a bit difficult to differentiate in terms of what they're doing. A couple things, though, are very clear. The burnt offering. The burnt offering is the most important offering. We know that the burnt offering is most important for two reasons. One, whenever there are lists of offerings in the Old Testament... This one always has pride of place. The burnt offering is first in all lists because it's the most important. And the reason why it's the most important is because of its function. Uh, In Hebrew, it's not called the burnt offering. If we were to just woodenly translate the Hebrew name for this, we would call it the ascender. The ascender. The one that goes up. And the reason for that is every bit of the burnt offering, which is why we often call it the whole burnt offering, every bit of it gets burned up and it rises up to God in smoke. He gets absolutely all of this. This one is for God and for God alone. And this is the primary atoning sacrifice. This is the... Other sacrifices participate in the forgiveness of sin, but the whole burnt offering, which goes all the way up to God, all of it goes up to God, this one is the primary sacrifice that covers the sins of God's people. And that's why it is first. The ascender... The whole burnt offering. Now, one other thing is clear. The third offering, the fellowship offering. Pretty good uh, translation because it kind of gets at the heart of what it is. If we were to translate this one woodenly, we would translate it the sacrifice of pieces, not P-I-E-C-E-S. Is that right? Did I get it? Not the sacrifices of a bunch of different pieces, but the sacrifice of P-E-A-C-E, peace, in the plural, the sacrifice of pieces. See, this is different than the whole burnt offering. When you would have offered this sacrifice, God would have gotten part of it. You would have gotten part of it. The priests and the Levites and the orphan and the widow would have gotten part of it. We would have all sat down together in the presence of God and shared this as a barbecue. Uh, Seriously, when you think of the temple, in part, you want to think of the temple as a restaurant. 
and the priests are the cooks handling the meat. They're cooking it. They're preparing it. You are a participant. Your friends and your family are all around you, and you are eating this tremendous meal, uh, calling others to come and join you who don't have as much as you do. You're, you're all enjoying this wonderful meal in the presence of God. Now, how can you do that? You can do that because, first of all, the whole burnt offering was offered up and sin was taken care of. Reconciliation. Reconciliation between you and God. Reconciliation between you and family members. Reconciliation between you and friends. Everything is reconciled to God by the whole burnt offering. And since we are all now reconciled to God and to each other, we can sit down and in the language of the NIV, we can enjoy this fellowship, this fellowship offering. Enjoying each other in the presence of God because our sin has been atoned for. But again, I don't want us to get lost in the forest for the trees. The main thing I want you to see when you read through, especially chapters 1 through 5, the main thing to see is how God has provided and, what's our word? Starts with an A. God has provided an abundance of sacrifices. This is telling us something about who God is. God is a God of abundance. We see that God is a God of abundance in creation. All you have to do is look around this room for a moment. We're all human beings, yes? We all have, well, I was going to start by saying we all have hair, but that's, that's more true of some than others. We all have two eyes, we have two nostrils, we have two ears, we have a mouth, we have a head, a neck, a torso, arms, right? We're all the same. Look around and try to find somebody in this room that looks like you. That's God's design. He's a God of abundance. Jellyfish. I think there are more species of jellyfish than any other species. Why so many? Won't one jellyfish do? No, because jellyfish are revealing to us that God is a God of abundance. Billions and billions of stars... Because God is a God of abundance. Drops of water in the ocean that we can't even count. Because God is a God of abundance. Throughout the whole of creation, He tells us who He is. He's a God of abundance, and He tells us that in redemption, He's the same God. He's a God of abundance. And so He provides an abundance of sacrifices. Number two. God provides an abundance of sacrifices to cover an abundance of sins. Two kinds in particular. Look at Leviticus 4.13. Unintentional sins. That's not the right reference. Oh, yes it is. Sorry. Back up one. There we go. 4.13. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, 
when they realize their guilt. Let me say a couple of things about these unintentional sins. First of all, from this text, it's clear that God differentiates between subjective guilt and objective guilt. And it's important for us to make that distinction. Subjective guilt means you feel guilty. Objective guilt means you are guilty, and those two things don't always come together. Plenty of times there are people who commit a crime, a sin, and they are guilty, but guess what? They don't feel it. On the other hand, sometimes we, we struggle feeling guilty when, as a matter of fact, we are not guilty. That's why it's important to see this distinction between being guilty and feeling guilty because the text says when they sin unintentionally, see, they're not even aware of it, and then when they, be, then when they become aware of it, now they not only are guilty, but now they're feeling it. And that's the ideal, right? The ideal is that when we truly are guilty, we feel guilty. And when we're not guilty, we don't feel guilty. But it doesn't always work that way. So the difference between objective and subjective guilt. But in terms of kinds of unintentional sins, Leviticus develops that in two related but different ways. This word that is translated unintentional might mean without premeditation. I'm no um, student of um, Western law, but I'm guessing that our like, concept of manslaughter is rooted in Leviticus. No premeditation, unintentional, didn't plan it, uh, a sin of passion, a sin that came up in the moment, but you didn't plan it. It's, it's unintentional in that sense. Um, or unintentional even in the sense that you weren't aware of it. And I'll bet most of us have done this one before. Have you ever gone through a stop sign, for example, that you didn't even see? Uh, it, maybe it was hidden by a tree or something. Maybe you got a ticket for it. And if, you, if the officer pulled you over and gave you a ticket, you, it just wouldn't work if you said, but officer, I didn't. I did, he, he, it doesn't matter. You went through the stop sign, even though you weren't aware of it. And how often do we sin without even being aware of it? How often do we sin against other people by what we say or by what we do or by what we don't do and we're not even aware of it? Trust me, they are. They're keenly aware of it. Then, so we don't feel guilty, but then when we become aware, then we feel guilty. The point is that whether it's a sin without premeditation whether it's a sin without even knowing that you did it, guess what? God has a sacrifice for it. He's provided an abundance of sacrifices to cover an abundance of sins, unintentional sins. But not only unintentional sins. God's also provided sacrifices to cover intentional sins. Look at Leviticus 
chapter 6. Just the first couple of verses. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them or left in their care, or about something stolen. I'm not quite sure how you can deceive somebody about something that they left in your care without premeditation, at a minimum without being uh, aware of it. Or if they cheat their neighbor. You don't do that accidentally. Or if they find lost property and then lie about it. You don't do that accidentally. Or if they swear falsely about such sin that people may commit. When they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt. Oh, these aren't sins that are unintentional. These are planned. These are thought out. These are purposeful sins. God has provided an abundance of sacrifices to cover an abundance of sins, even the ones that we commit with full intentionality. We think about it. We know better. We plan it. We know better. We do it. We know better. God has provided sacrifices for those sins. Leviticus is marvelous, 1 to 7. God has provided an abundance of sacrifices to cover all kinds of sins. Third, this is where for me it really starts to get good. God has provided an abundance of sacrifices to cover an abundance of sins committed by an abundance of people. People in all social strata. Remember when we read from chapter 4. Chapter 4 starts by saying, if a priest sins, this is what he has to do. But then starting in verse 13, which we read, if the whole community sins, this is what they have to do. Chapter 4, verse 22 If a leader in the community sins, this is what he has to do. Chapter 4, verse 27. If some layperson sins, this is what he or she has to do. Notice that as we go through this fourth chapter, all kinds of people from various strata in the social hierarchy are listed. Everybody from top to bottom, and what's the point of the chapter? It doesn't matter from what stratum of society you come, God has provided sacrifice for you. Nobody is left out. Be they the most important or the least important, the most well-known, the least well-known. God has provided an abundance of sacrifices to cover an abundance of sin by an abundance of people People from all social strata. Closely related but different. People from all economic strata. 
And if there's a place in the Bible, any place, where we see the beauty of the heart of God, it is in Leviticus chapter 5. Look at chapter 5 and verse 5. Leviticus 5, 5. When anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what way they have sinned. As a penalty for the sin they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering. How how easy is that? If you sin, You don't have to take a long, arduous pilgrimage. You don't have to pray for days and days and days. You don't have to uh, harm your body. You don't have to starve yourself. The only thing you have to do is bring a female lamb or a goat. That's it. That's how gracious God is. There's only one problem with that. There were plenty of people in ancient Israel who just couldn't do that. They were not wealthy enough to be able to provide a lamb or a goat. So what do you do? If God says, you weren't forgiven, the only thing it takes is just one lamb or one goat, and you say, sounds good, but I don't got it. Well, let's just keep going in this chapter and just go down to verse 7. Anyone who cannot afford a lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons. Okay, says God, I get it. Some of you are not as wealthy as others. You can't afford a lamb or a goat. I get it. All you have to do, just two birds. That's all I'm going to ask of you. Isn't God gracious? Unless you can't afford two birds. Then what do you do? Well, you keep reading in the chapter until you come to verse 11. If, however, they cannot afford two doves or two young pigeons, they are to bring as an offering for their sin a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour for a sin offering. That's about a three-pound bag of flour. Every ancient Israelite had that. Do you see the grace of God and how the grace of God is being extended to absolutely every economic strata? If you are rich, if you are poor, if you are poorer than poor, if you are wealthier than wealthy, God has made a way. 
He has made a way to cover an abundance of sin by an abundance of people from every social strata, from every economic strata. God made sure that nobody could say forgiveness is not available to me. He's a God of abundance. And he is making forgiveness available abundantly. And that's our last point. God has provided an abundance of sacrifices for an abundance of people to cover an abundance of sins who will experience an abundance of forgiveness. There is a golden thread that runs through Leviticus chapter 1 through chapter 7. Listen to that thread. Leviticus 4.26, and he will be forgiven. Leviticus 4.31, and they will be forgiven. Leviticus 4.35, and they will be forgiven. Leviticus 5.10, and they will be forgiven. Leviticus 5.13, and they will be forgiven. Leviticus 5.16, and they will be forgiven. Leviticus 5.18, and they will be forgiven. Leviticus 6.7, and they will be forgiven. This is the gospel. This is not Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, or Romans. This is Leviticus. Leviticus, this most peculiar book that in a most peculiar way reveals to you the gracious heart of your God. The extent to which he will go in order to make sure that all of the sins of everybody can be forgiven. But he'll even go further than that. Let's conclude by looking at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1, just reading a little bit long of a text with a few comments. Now the first covenant, that's the covenant made with Israel on Mount Sinai. The first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the curtain contained, behind the curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. See, so if I'm not going into tremendous detail on Leviticus 1-7, to I got the author of Hebrews to back me up on that. He's just saying sometimes you can't go into all the detail you might like to go into. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration. 
In other words, all that we read about with all these sacrifices and the blood sprinkled here and the blood dripped here and this poured here and this part of the liver and that part of the fat, we've got to see that it's all an illustration. It's like like God was the one who invented flannel graph lessons for Sunday school, if any of you remember flannel graph. This is like the original flannel graph lesson. This is an illustration for present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience. Remember, are guilty and feel guilty. And all of these sacrifices and all of this blood and all of these rituals, none of it was real. It was all an illustration. None of it could actually cleanse the conscience so that people didn't feel guilty anymore. Did that mean that all ancient Israelites walked around with a guilt complex, burdened by guilt, never free from guilt? Absolutely not. Why not? Keep reading. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That is, not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Ancient Israelites could live with a clear conscience, not because of the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You might think of the cross of Christ at the pinnacle of history, and his atoning work not only flows forward to you, but it flows backward to all of God's believing people in the ancient world. And so they could live with a cleansed conscience, but not because of those old Rituals, but because of the reality that is found in Christ. You see, the blood of goats and of bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences? from acts that lead to death. Put it another way. If you think that Leviticus reveals a God of abundant grace, take a look at Christ. God is willing to go so far to make sure that all people can be forgiven of all sins that he says it doesn't even take three pounds of flour. One thing is common about all of that that we read in Leviticus chapter 5. You had to bring it. You've got to bring the lamb. Okay, you can't. You've got to bring two pigeons. Okay, you can't. You've got to bring three pounds of flour. Ultimately, you see, we can't even bring that. And God knows it. And so he says, you know how far I'm willing to go so that you can be forgiven? You don't have to bring anything. Nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross 
I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And you know what he says? She'll be forgiven. He'll be forgiven. They'll be forgiven. You'll be forgiven. How do we respond? We don't have to wonder. Because of that last clause in verse 14. So that we may serve the living God. If you have been forgiven of an abundance of sins. By the abundance of God's grace in Christ. Then go and serve the living God. Let's pray.